I have started a new series and uh, then had intended to preach this last Sunday, uh, but uh, it didn't work out quite that way with the men's conference. The series is entitled Overcoming the Ancient Giants of This Modern Age. And my thesis is, is that everything that we face right now, actually there's a spirit behind it that those spirits have been around for many years and they transform themselves. Satan begins in the Bible as being described as a serpent. Then he moves on to being transformed as an angel of light. From that, he then becomes the dragon in the book of Revelation. Satan has the ability to change the mask he wears at any given time to fit the situation that he can carry out his deceptive program. I wish somebody would say that's right. Amen. And we need to know that the spirits that we struggle with today actually have their roots way back in ancient times when the fallen angels who rebelled against God were cast out of heaven to this earth. They are disembodied spirits. They manifest themselves in different ways. It's interesting that when I came in yesterday, I found that there was a survey that has just been completed across our nation. And they were asked, how many of you believe in demonic spirits? 45% of our nation said yes. I find that interesting in this regard. Many of those who said they believed in demonic spirits, 45%, also believe in a majestic, all-powerful God. In fact, the percentage that believe in God is greater than the number that believe in fallen spirits. However, it's the same Bible that teaches you that there is a God that also informs us of the spirit dimension. You can't believe in one without the other. Oh, I wish I could hear an amen. But our educated, sophisticated society believes we've learned so much that we don't need to believe in the realm of fallen spirits anymore. And frankly, when you believe you've learned so much that you don't need the Bible, I question if you've really learned so much. Amen. Rightly so. I don't mean that to be insulting. I want to take a look at something. I want to talk to you this morning about speaking truth and changing culture. In the book of Esther, chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Amidathah, the Agite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. Haman is elevated to become literally second in command of the great empire of Babylon. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Esther 7, verse 9 through 10, Now Harbona, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, Look, The gallows, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. Then the king said, hang him on it. Speaking of Haman, Haman starts out as the second in command. He's been elevated to this lofty position in government. And then something has happened in the interim that has caused his plot because he did indeed plot to annihilate the Jews in Persia. His plot was exposed. What Haman didn't realize is that Esther was Jewish who had become the queen to King Ahasuerus. And once this plot was exposed, the king was furious and said, hang Haman 
on the gallows that he built to hang Mordecai. I'll explain who Mordecai was in a moment. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. Chapter 8, verse 1 through 2. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman. The enemy of the Jews and Mordecai came before the king. For Esther had told him how he was related to her. So the king took off his signet ring, which he had given to Haman previously, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. What you have just witnessed in these few passages, and I'll try to fill in some of the blanks in the story in my message, but you have just witnessed divine reversal occur. And the man that was on top ended up at the bottom. The one who wanted to destroy, destroy the people of God. And the ones that were on the bottom that faced persecution and destruction were elevated to be on top. I thank God that he knows how to do this in your life. He can turn it all around. Let's look at somebody and say, God can turn it all around. Would you do that? Father, I thank you for the word of God, and I ask that you would speak to us in these next few minutes, and let your word impact our lives in a way that is transforming and vital to us, for your glory in Jesus' name. And everybody shouted and said, Amen. The stories of the Bible are not given to us just for our entertainment or reading pleasure. They are given to us because they illustrate and bring to life for us the principles and laws that are contained within the teachings of the Bible. As I've pointed out before, when you first begin to study the Bible, it's 66 books, 1,189 chapters, 31,173 verses, and up to 807,362 words, depending upon which translation is used. Or they're like a huge, gigantic jigsaw puzzle that you pour out on the floor made up of those 807,362 words. Imagine a jigsaw puzzle with that many pieces. And you don't even have the cover of a box with a picture on it to tell you what it's supposed to look like. You first begin to study the Bible, it, it seems to be a huge task. You look at it and think, how in the world will I ever understand this? I perfectly understand why people say the Bible is not relevant. It's because they have this stack of pieces that they haven't been able to put together yet. I also understand how people could say there is no God. It's because they haven't put the pieces together yet. I understand why in the middle of a dark season in your life, you could feel abandoned by God. It's because you haven't put the pieces together yet. Trust me, when you put the pieces together, God always emerges as the loving, powerful, victorious God that he is. And the person who elevates those who trust him. Amen. You read sometimes for years, and in all honesty, it's challenging at first. And you're wondering what it means. And why is a book written so long ago and ported to you, you begin to question in 2019. And then as you get the pieces to begin to fit together, slowly a picture begins to emerge out of this that causes you to be impacted by the truth it contains. The first thing that you see are the little simple stories you learned in Sunday school. David killed Goliath. 
Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt and they passed through the Red Sea, but Pharaoh's army was drowned. Ezekiel's Valley of Dry Bones. You first begin to learn the stories in the Bible. And then after a while, you realize it's not just the stories that you're reading. It's the history contained in the story that is so vital. And the reason the history is vital is because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. And what he did yesterday gives you a clue as to what he's going to do today. Because God doesn't change, man might, but if somebody depended on God yesterday and he came through, I can tell you in the same situation, God is not going to change. He's going to come through for whoever trusts him right now. Oh, I wish I could hear an amen. And so from the stories emerges history And when you look at the word history, it is actually a cognate of the two words, his story. History is his story. And from his story, principles then begin to emerge. And this is at at the point where the Bible becomes fascinating. And you become addicted to studying the Bible. It's not in the stories and it's not in the history. Those are helpful. But when you begin to realize that there are principles within the history that is in the stories. Principles are important because they're basic assumptions and understanding of truth. But then from within the principles, laws begin to emerge. Now you're putting the puzzle together and it's beginning to take shape. It's not just principles, it's divine laws. What do I mean by divine laws? Laws govern the operation of this natural world. Law of gravity, hello somebody. The law, uh, for example, of thermodynamics, the four laws of thermodynamics. All of these cause this world we live in to function. They can be made to be used for you. As I've explained before, if you understand aerodynamics, and we have in our, our building right now, because I've spotted them, at least two air controllers that are sitting here. And every single day they watch this put into practice. And I was able to fly in from Amsterdam yesterday because somebody understood the law of aerodynamics. You make that wing right, you get the right amount of thrust and you adjust those flaps right. You know what? You can make a 747 get off the ground and it will fly somebody halfway around the world. I know it just happened to me yesterday. Wasn't a 747, but it used to be. And, and, and so my point is simply this. There is, uh, every time I get on an airplane, I marvel, how do they get that heavy piece of equipment off the ground? And it's because of the law of aerodynamics. Somebody learned the law, and here's what's vital. When you learn the divine laws that concern the spirit realm, because there are laws that govern the spirit realm like there are those that govern the natural realm, When you begin to make those work for you, you get elevation, amen. You get takeoff, you get thrust, hello somebody. You don't have to live at the level you're living at right now. And what's powerful about the Bible is it will elevate your life. It will cause your life to be transformed. Oh, somebody in the building ought to shout hallelujah. It will cause your finances to take off. It will make your marriage successful. It will cause your relationships to become powerful. Hallelujah. But then you discover that within the laws, there are keys. Ooh, 
And that's what transforms your life. I got some keys. Jesus told Peter, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. Not the laws, not the principles, not the stories or the history. We're going deeper than that. I'm going to give you the keys because within every law, there is a key where you can make that law work for you. And it goes like this. I've got keys that get into my house, right? There's another key for my bedroom, another key for my my wardrobe closet. I can give you a key that will get you into the back door in the kitchen, but that don't get you into my bedroom. And then I can give you one to get into my bedroom, but that don't get you into my wardrobe or my closet. You don't get in my closet, you don't get to wear my Lou Casey boots. I'm making sense to anybody right now. How far you go in God is determined by the keys you've got. Oh, somebody in the building ought to shout hallelujah. Don't curse what you're at right now, where you're at. Instead, get some keys and open some doors in your life. Don't be the victim. You gain control of the situation. Keys are instruments for gaining access. Most Christians have no idea how powerful the word of God is. Mahatma Gandhi said this about the Bible. He said, you Christians look after a document. He was Hindu, by the way. You Christians look after a document containing enough dynamite to blow all civilization to pieces, turn the world upside down and bring peace to a battle-torn planet. But you treat it as though it is nothing more than a piece of literature. That's right. All the people do is look at the stories. They don't get into the history. And if you don't get into the history, you won't find the principles. And if you don't dig deeper, you won't find the laws. And if you don't go beyond that, you won't find the keys. And we need as believers to know who we are in God. Look at your neighbor and said, you need to know who you are in God. <laughs> oh, hallelujah to the lamb. Now look, I'm Cajun. I like to tell Cajun jokes and people have been telling me it's been too long since you told one. So I'm going to tell one today. And we Cajuns love to laugh at ourselves. Clovis Boudreaux lived across the bayou from Clarence Fontenot, who he didn't like at all. And they would shout insults across the bayou at each other all the time. And Clovis would yell at Clarence, if I had a way to cross this bayou, I'd come over there and teach you a lesson good, yeah. And while Clarence would shout back, you better be glad this bayou is here or you would learn a thing or two yourself. This went on for years. And finally, the state went and built a bridge across the bayou right by their house and Clovis's wife Eunice said now's your chance why don't you go over there and teach that Clarence a lesson like you say you're gonna and so Clovis said okay and he started walking across the bridge but he saw a sign on the bridge and he turned around promptly and went back home and Eunice asked why are you back so soon Shah?" and Clovis said my Shah." he said I done changed my mind about teaching that Clarence a lesson you know he don't look near that big when I yell at him from across the bayou but they got a big sign on that bridge that say Clarence 13 feet 6 inches amen (laughs) you learn who you are and the devil will stay afraid of you we should not be intimidated by what goes on around us To help us understand our role in society today, I want to look at what is behind the story of Esther, one of the most amazing books in the Bible. 
The Bible places within our hands not just stories or history or principles. It gives us divine laws. And then if we look into those, we can discover, as I've said, kingdom keys and enlist the help of God. And heavenly angels, a whole angel's army. He's called the Lord of hosts, which means the Lord of angels' armies. We can literally, with keys, enlist God's help to open up our future and our destiny. Did you know this, that the book of Esther is the only book in the Bible where God is not mentioned not one single time? It's not mentioned at all. For that reason, it was almost left out of the Bible. When the scholars put together the canon of the holy word of God, they nearly left the book of Esther out completely because there is no direct mention of God. Read it. Every one of its chapters, you will not find a single reference to God. However... God is so prominently at work behind the scenes throughout this book that the book of Esther was included in the sacred canon of the Holy Scripture anyway. It is literally a textbook for strategies and how to defeat the spirit of the age in which you live. I want you to see that. It is a textbook for how to defeat the spirit of the age in which you live. The theme of this book is all about how to overcome spiritual forces in society and in culture that, that oppose the kingdom of God today. And it's vital that we understand these strategies because some Christians, as I said earlier, actually don't even believe in fallen spirits. And as I said, the same Bible that tells them there is a God say that these fallen spirits are actively at work. And so you would think some people would see through the insanity that's going on right now in our culture and be able to make a determination even without the benefit of God's word supporting this, but some people can't. I wanna look at the book of Esther. It is a true and factual account of things that took place during the time the people of God were in captivity. But it is also meant to be understood as an allegory for what the church is facing today. An allegory is a literary device whereby events and people in one story become symbolic and they reveal insight into the character and principles in something else. You learn this in school. An allegory can be a very real factual event that has metaphoric meaning in relationship to something else. Now listen closely. Everything in the Bible, what I just said shouldn't shake you because everything in the word of God is true. But you need to understand this one principle in studying the Bible. Everything in the Bible is meant to have application to your life today. For it to do that, it means it has to have an allegorical meaning that you can grasp, even though the events may have occurred many years ago. For example, the story of God opening a way through the Red Sea for Moses and Israel is true, but it is also allegorical. What do I mean by that? And my journey for God, God's opened many a Red Sea that I couldn't get through, amen. And God made a way where there was no way. I wonder if there's anybody else in this house that's faced Red Seas before. You ever faced an impossible and impassable situation? This story is set in Babylon. And, and when I, you look at Babylon, it represents the world in which we live. That's allegorical as well. Give you another common allegory that, that we know is true. David killed a Goliath. How many of you have ever faced a Goliath in your life? Hello, somebody. How many of you are facing one right now? Amen. So you see, not only was it true, it has allegorical application to your life today. 
In the book of Esther, there are five central characters that play a significant role. Both the protagonist and the antagonist, those who are victims and victims, are, are victors rather, and those who are villains. And they, they are important to us. Five is the number of grace in scripture. And throughout the book of Esther, the, the theme from cover to cover is from start to finish, from the beginning of the first chapter to the last is the grace of God. And when you look at these five people, some of them good, others who hated good, some of them godly, others of them who did not know God. We see that no matter how difficult the challenges might be that confront you, Listen to this, when God is for you, when God is for you, no one can be against you, no one can stand. When God is for you, all of the strategies of the enemy may look like they're working, but at the last minute, if you pull out one of these keys that I'm talking about, God will yank the rug right out from underneath the devil's feet. It may look like it's the midnight hour and you may not feel like you can survive, but Bubby, I got some keys in my hands that's going to help me get through. Can somebody say hallelujah? hallelujah? These five characters are, of course, King Ahasuerus, who becomes in this book a type that represents our King of Kings. You might not know this, but that was even one of the titles, King Ahasuerus War, King of Kings. Secondly, we see Vastai, who was his bride. She represents a complacent and apathetic church that has become too self-absorbed to impact the culture around her. Then we see thirdly, Esther, the orphan girl who was a nobody that God then elevated to become a somebody that was one of the most influential and important people in the world in her time through the guidance of the fourth major character in this book. That person is Mordecai. Mordecai literally represents the teachings of the word of God. He adopted Esther and in a foreign land taught her the word of God almighty. And that word that was imported into her transformed her life. How many of you know that when you get enough word inside, it will transform your life? Amen. The, the fifth person is Haman. He was an Agagite or one of the Amalekites, one of Israel's arch rivals. He represents evil, and he was literally plotting to kill every Jew or child of God in Persia. Haman had become very high placed in government and represents what happens when godliness takes over leadership. I want you to know that when godliness is promoted and takes over leadership, whether that's in your home, even in your own life, or in government, it always brings about chaos and catastrophe. Haman was the arch enemy of the people of God. He used his position as the leading government official to work against the children of God. If that doesn't sound like some of the stuff we've had going on in our nation and in our world, I don't know what does. Haman was called an Agagite because he was a member of the royal family of the Amalekites. You remember that God told Samuel, go tell Saul to kill every Amalekite. And he spared King Agag alive. And now these years later, the descendants of King Agag, some of the people he let get by are in Babylon and they're plotting their revenge. When you don't kill what God said kill, it will rise up to haunt you. 
You can't befriend it. You can't make a peace treaty with it. You can't let it slide. You got to get rid of it. Can I hear somebody in the house give God a praise break right now? Amen. Haman worshiped the God of the Amalekites, who was the same God that the Ammonites worshiped. And that was Moab that I mentioned a couple of weeks ago. This is the hideous idol made of metal with a cavernous opening in its stomach. And it would be heated until it was glowing cherry red. And they would put the arms of infants or the the, the bodies of infants, still living children. They would put their infants in his hands and they would roll into this open cavernous hole in his stomach into the flames and be incinerated alive. And they would be dancing and shouting and making music as they worshiped this fallen God, this fallen spirit. You see, the idol was nothing. It was the, the spirit behind the idol which was to kill these children. I want to say something here. I have a belief, a reason to believe the enemy wants to do away with the millennial generation. And generation Z, he wants to get rid of you. You know why? He's scared to death of who you are. He's scared to death. You, Mom, Dad, listen to me. The enemy wants to attack your children because he knows they're about to do something that's going to upset his future plans for this world we live in. Pharaoh wiped out an entire generation of Israeli boys trying to get one called Moses because he knew because of the spirit inside of him. You see, Pharaoh was the living representation of the sun God. He had his, the dominant spirit of the region resided in him, the principality. And Pharaoh didn't know it here, but he knew it here. There's a threat to me out there. I got to get rid of every male child two years of age and under. And he set about to kill them but I want to tell you something you can't stop what God has planned you can't stop what God is going to make happen you may try but you can't fight against God your arms are too short to box with God did you hear what I'm saying he always comes through one more time let's give him praise here this morning amen That is not the only historical example of this occurring. Herod ordered every male child two years of age and under in Bethlehem to be killed. For the very same reason he was trying to kill Jesus. Because the principality in him was agitated and knew that that there was something rising up. But the night before the army came to kill every male child two years of age and under in Bethlehem, Joseph had a dream. God always makes a way of escape when you dedicate your heart to him. If you will serve him, I don't care what you're going through. God will make a way in the middle of no way. God will open a door where there is no door. Remember what I said. You got some keys and if you put those to work, there's a God that can make things happen in your life. Yes, he can that you could not have made. The devil fought to keep some of you from getting here. That's because he's terrified of you. That's why he's trying to destroy your marriage. Can I get real right now? That's why you're down in the dumps. But let me tell you, in the middle of the valley, God's going to restore somebody's soul. Because you're finding out who you are today. You're a child of God. I don't have but a few minutes left, but Vastai and Haman actually represent opposing sides of the very same coin. Strange as it may seem, what they were doing was actually related. 
They both worked to destroy the people of God. Vashti, remember, was the first queen before Esther became queen. I believe Vashti worked unwittingly to destroy the people of God, simply not knowing what she was, what the outcome of her actions would be. Haman, on the other hand, acted with great deliberation and treachery to conspire against the people of God. Haman, like the enemy today, wanted to keep the people of God from becoming who God intended for them to be. Both these people worked to destroy God's kingdom, God's people, remember, but in different ways. The good news is, as I said before, that the book of Esther confirms this one significant fact, that the kingdom always wins in the end. God always comes through. Somebody ought to give God a praise that's in a dark place right now. Because you hold on, God will come through for you. Let's go back to Vastai. Because she just wanted to party with her ladies. The king called all of the leaders of his 127 provinces together and sent to Vastai and said, I want you to come show the world your beauty. She was so beautiful. Her name literally means, Vastai means beautiful. And Vastai refused to come. You know why? She was entertaining all of the wives of the leaders of these 127 provinces. So her theme might be girls just want to have fun. Won't anybody be offended when I say that? That's all she wanted. Girls just want to have fun. And she said no when the king had created a set up situation where the world could see her beauty. She refused. Think about it. Without Facebook, Instagram, social media, without television or cable news, the whole world could have heard of the beauty of the queen. But she refused to go because she was too busy having her party. If that doesn't describe the present day church, I don't know what does. God wants to show the world the beauty of the church, but we're too busy having our party. You've got to impact culture and make a difference. God has called you to show the world his glory. It was a setup. Matthew five thirteen. the message says, let me tell you why you're here. You're here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and you'll end up in the garbage. That, oh my Lord, have mercy. She refused to engage with the need and chose to remain unobserved and unfelt presence in her society. How many believers have literally been taught that doctrinally? Don't get involved in anything. Don't get involved in sports, arts. Don't get involved in leader. You better get involved. The king has called you to show his, your beauty to a world. You know, you say, well, why, what, how will that impact the world for God? Because he chose you. And when they see his hand on your life and see your beauty, they're going to say, I want some of what's going on in that person's life. I want God like she has God. He has God. Hello, the king has called us and we have a mission. Now that brings us, and I'm about to close, to Esther, who was an orphan, a nobody who became a somebody when the king selected her to become his bride because he had to replace Vastai. That's scary. Will God raise people up and put them in the position of present day church members if we don't do our job? This hints at that, and it tells me that God has not forgotten about the world, no matter no matter how desperately bad and evil it becomes. Mordecai represents the word of God that healed the orphan spirit of Esther. Esther had to learn to think like a queen and stop thinking like an orphan. 
I'm preaching better than you're responding right now. This church supports a lot of orphans in Africa and in India. And I can tell you the one thing they have in common is not the color of their skin. And not even the desperation of their circumstance. But it's they grow up feeling unvalued. They don't feel they have a, comp- a, a contribution to make. Many of them abandoned by their parents or their parents died and left them AIDS orphans. And here they are shuttled from one place to another by relatives and relatives can't take care of their own family. And so they end up in orphanages and, and it, it, they struggle. Many of them, the families there live on less than a dollar a day. And these kids have heard so much, so many times, we don't have the food and the money to put into this kid or his education and, and education. It's not free there. And these kids grow up feeling unvalued. The orphaned spirit is a spirit that makes you feel you do not have value in the eyes of almighty God. And the word of God, Mordecai, who represents its principles and its keys, transformed Esther's life so that she could understand who she was. Through the tutelage of Mordecai, Esther's thinking was transformed. She was selected. She was the queen, but she was still thinking like an orphan. Somebody said that, I want you to do this rather. I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, it's the space between your ears that determines your future. Change your thinking and change your world. Romans 12. Be not conned into forming the same thoughts as the world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Tell somebody I'm not an orphan anymore. I've been adopted by the king of kings. I'm a part of his family now. I'm a child of God. I have a destiny. I have a future. Yes, I do. Why is that important? It is because God's word will change the way you think and open up a world to you that you haven't had access to previously. It will position you for promotion. Now access, there's a good word. Have you ever tried to gain entry to a site on your computer only to have it declare access denied? Look at your neighbor and say, I've lived in that world, access denied. I've been there. I was raised that way. I know something about it because I grew up without a mama. Access denied. No more do you need to live with that being the symbol or the label over your life. Mordecai did three things for Esther. He first helped her discern her true identity. Don't forget who you are. You may have been raised as an orphan, but you're the queen of an empire right now. Number two, he helped her discover her assignment. If you're in this place today, it's because God has an assignment for your life. Don't you let the devil tell you anything but that. Somebody ought to shout hallelujah right there. And number three, Mordecai made Esther recognize her Kairos time. That she could then be released into her destiny. Three things. Your identity your assignment and your timing. Those three things, you ever get those to click at the same moment, the devil is going to be terrified of you. Amen. I'm talking to somebody right now. I'm not just preaching. I'm talking to somebody that's about to step into a Kairos moment. Yes, you are. 
for you to take advantage of it, you've got to know who you are. And you've got to know what you're supposed to do when you get there. Because some people step into the right time, but they don't know who they are yet. And that's what happened with Esther. I can't go in and see the king. You know, the law of 30 days, he's been away and he's been busy. And if I go in and he doesn't extend the scepter, I'll die. And that was literally the law. That if you went in uninvited to the king and he didn't extend his scepter, you died on the spot. And so Mordecai said, listen to this. And this is Cairo's time. He said, don't forget you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I want somebody to say such a time as this. Not tomorrow, right now. Such a time as this. I'm stepping into a Kairos moment. I'm stepping into a Kairos time in my marriage. I'm stepping into a Kairos time in my ministry. I'm stepping into a Kairos time in my finances. Something is changing in my life. I discovered who I am. I discovered I have an assignment. And I'm stepping into my time. When Esther stopped thinking like an orphan and began to think like a queen, she faced up to Haman after three days of fasting. And that's what you do. That's one of the keys. Fasting will open your assignment up and your timing. She went in. You see, thinking like an orphan, and I've said this before, but I've got to say it again. Her, king is, her husband is so busy with affairs of the kingdom that he's been eating Chinese takeout now for 30 days. They've been sending him Papa John's. And she's thinking he might not extend the scepter. She had to stop thinking like that and start thinking like this. That's my boo in there. It's been 30 days since he's seen me and I got something going on, if you know what I mean. And and I know he's missing home. And so I'm going to walk in there. I'm not thinking that I'm going to get killed. When he sees me, his eyes are going to pop out and he's going to say, Mama, where you been? I've been waiting for you. Hello. In Esther 5, 2, the king, when, he king, when he saw her, extended the scepter. This is what is so significant. And, I, and really, I'm done. He was waiting in the throne room for her. If you get in the throne room, everything is going to change. That's what tonight is about. It's about getting in the throne room. I don't think you heard me yet. Because you can stand outside on the other side of the wall and not get anything done. But you step into the throne room and the king is going to extend the scepter. I've come to tell somebody the scepter is extended today. Get in the throne room. 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 Hallelujah. And that's when God did a revine reversal. And the man that was at the top was hanged on his own gallows. Stand with me across the building. And they gave Mordecai the property of Haman. Oh Lord, there's so much in that I'd love to preach. Prayer counselors, come and join me. Tell somebody I'm getting ready to inherit Haman's property. Would you do that? Oh, you don't say it like you mean it. I'm getting ready to take over Haman's estate. 
but I'm a nobody. I'm living outside the gate. Not anymore. I'm not. I got some stuff going on. I'm stepping into the throne room. Hello. 